Yeah, got it. All right, okay. Next time on Spoiler, we'll be watching the 2018 Queen biopic. Biopic? Biopic. 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 We'll be watching the 2018 Queen biographical picture, Bohemian Rhapsody. The show you're about to hear discusses films, books, and TV shows in their entirety. Twists, endings, and all. Without fear of spoilers. So if you don't want to know who dies, who done it, or how it all ends, we strongly advise you switch off now. Hello, I'm Paul Tyler, and welcome to Spoiler, the show which reviews movies, books, and TV shows in their entirety. This week, we're watching the 2018 Queen biopic, Bohemian Rhapsody. And, just another final warning, we will be talking about the whole of the film. We will ruin it for you. So, if you've not already seen Bohemian Rhapsody, go away and watch it now. Then come back to us afterwards. Have they gone? Right. On with the show. Making movies is a complicated business at the best of times. Plot, casting, best boy grips, all very complex. Occasionally, I'll look at the story of how a film was created and marvel at just how it even came through the funding process, which most of the time can seem unfair, unjust, and generally gives the audience sequels for the sake of it, as the studios know it will make a ton of cash. But think about that for a minute. Let's say you've got a spare 40 quid kicking around. There's a good chance you'd invest that in someone you know doing something creative. Maybe they're writing a book or making a podcast and need a leg up. Fair enough, you help them out, and that's great. Well done you. But what if your business was investing other people's money in projects that need to make money back? And let's stick some noughts on the end of our 40 quid, and let's make it 40 million pounds. To me, that seems like a pressure I could live without, unless the people that walk into your office have the view of making a film about the cash cow that is the band Queen. We'll not go into quantities of album sales because it's tedious. It's just a number nearer infinity than not. But the money-savvy investor would look at what happened after the band's frontman, vocal magician, and personification of the word charismatic passed away. Still more record-breaking single and album releases, a 12-year West End rock theatrical, and sell-out tours with singers who, although wonderful, just aren't Freddie Mercury. You're a legend, Fred. You're bloody right I am. So what if we bring Freddie back to life via the silver screen? It's a certainty, right? Well, it still turned out to be a huge gamble. Being seven years in development, the director was changed due to the old creative differences trope, as was the lead actor, Sasha Baron Cohen. Things fell into place once Rami Malek was cast and filming could finally start, but after a few months, its replacement director, Brian Singer, was sacked due to absences or personal reasons or on-set clashes or renewed sexual assault allegations seem unclear. Dexter Fletcher was then brought in to rescue the project that had gone too far into production for those valuable investments to be lost. Galileo! Galileo Picaro! Jesus, how many more Galileos do you want? Freddie wants to do uh, a few more overdubs. So, what did we end up with? Warts and all? Fly on the wall? A fictionalised fantasy? A musical? Well, no, but kind of. The critical response is summed up very well by Dave Calhoun writing in Time Out. 
It boasts a film-stealing performance by Rami Malek, who pouts, struts and quips as Mercury. The movie, though catchy and often seductive, is an act of brazen myth-making. Facts and chronology are tossed aside in favour of a messianic storyline. It goes on forever, six bloody minutes. I pity your wife if you think six minutes is forever. But, as Mrs Brown's boys and the present political state proves, an intellectual study of anything currently has little value. Unlike an investment in a Queen movie, where you would currently be 20 times richer than when you wrote your cheque for an already colossal amount of money. What's that, Freddy? We are the champions? Indeed. Later in the show, we'll be taking a look at some of the performances at Live Aid and asking if some of the criticisms of the event were justified. But first, joining me here in the studio to discuss Bohemian Rhapsody are a pair of friends who will be friends right till the end. There's going to be a lot of singing in this uh, in this show. Why, it's Andy Goulding and Rachel Burnett. Hello. Hey. And I actually put the word why in the script there. I really, I really wanted to put that in. Uh, it's going to be a traditional thing now. So, Rachel, Rachel, Rachel. Paul, Paul, Paul. Queen fan? Yes. Excellent. Andy, Queen fan? Not really. All right, okay. Oh, so here we go. Interesting. It's a good setup, isn't it? Well, yeah. um, okay. Rachel, let's go to you. <laughs> let's go to you first. Trouble production. Should this whole thing have been shelved? No. Oh. Sorry, but no. <laughs> I was horribly manipulated by the film. I know I was, but I don't care. And I really enjoyed it mm-hmm. as a Queen fan. Full of music and full of Freddie, and it did it for me fine. Mm. Andy, <laughs> uh, no, no. Well, this is this is good. It's always rubbish when we all agree on stuff, isn't it? So, but yeah. you're you're not a Queen fan, not really, which uh, is bizarre. But what did you <laughs> what did you think of the film? Uh, well, I'm, like I said, I'm not really a Queen fan, but they're one of those bands like ABBA who I really appreciate the brilliance of the songbook. It's, you'd be an idiot to deny that. Okay. Without necessarily loving that that many of the songs, I went in thinking, yeah, there's some great ones in there. I'm not the biggest fan of biopics either. I think they often tend to follow a well-established formula that's extremely watchable without leaving a lasting impression. So for me, they're kind of like greatest hits albums because they hit all those expected crowd-pleasing highs while ultimately not really providing the satisfaction that you get from a cohesive album. And with Bohemian Rhapsody, I got exactly what I was expecting, which was not a greatest hits album so much as one of those albums you found in a bargain bin that says, the greatest hits of Queen. And then you look closer at it and it says, as interpreted by the Pan Pipe Orchestra of New South Wales. (laughs) I try not to go into anything with like major preconceptions, as I said. And there's some cracking musical biopics out there, but I was put on edge immediately (laughs) with this film by its title. Now, it makes sense to me to call your Johnny Cash biopic Walk the Line or your Woody Guthrie biopic Bound for Glory. But why is this film called Bohemian Rhapsody? It's just taking the band's most famous song and sticking it there front and Mm centre without any consideration of thematic resonance and it immediately reveals this film's kind of cynical allegiance to commercial success over artistic achievement. Now, I feel I should say at this point as well, before like we get into like snobbery against this film <laughs> and stuff, there's nothing wrong with making a film that's designed to please more people, but you can make it good quality without sacrificing that broader appeal. And for me, this film fails in that respect. 
partly by mucking around with those crucial factual details in order to hit expected, painfully played out beats in the rock and roll rise to fame cliche narrative. And it doesn't matter if you're hitting those familiar beats as long as you arrive at them organically and connect them up convincingly. But for me, this felt like they started out with a map of those plot points and then just threw himself headlong at each one with no consideration for structure, characterization, dialogue, theme, or the truth. Now, I don't think it helped with this whole film. Sorry, it's a bit of a rant. No, 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 um, no, no, this is great. I'm, just, I'm sat here agog, this is great. Uh, I don't think it helped that the whole film was, was made under the watchful eye of the surviving band members uh, who were so concerned about the damage of, to Freddie Mercury's legacy that they seemed to push for something sanitised and ultimately they got this stale, predictable advert for their greatest hits albums. Uh, and the other thing about this film that, that immediately put me on edge was the screenwriter is Anthony McCartan, who is one of my least favourite screenwriters of recent times. And when he was asked about all these factual changes he'd made to the script, he, he said, we're making a movie here, not a documentary which is such a disappointingly vapid statement from the person who's been entrusted with telling a story that will mean so much to so many people. Uh, other films that, that Anthony McCartan's written before, like The Theory of Everything, Darkest Hour, a couple more big Oscar-nominated biopics that I really disliked and which both took really drastic liberties with the facts about the subjects. Uh, so I came away from this, like the third one of his his films that I've really disliked, thinking I think he's well-named, Anthony McCartan, because his <laughs> scripts are like the fast-food version of biopics. You open up the McCartan and there's some instant gratification, which in the long run is bad for you and bad for society. I'm not holding back this week. <laughs> now, if I was a bad host of a programme... You're welcome to your own opinion about that. I would say uh, I would say something along the lines of, well, that's all we've got time for. Yes. Um, I, I, I'm not going to let that go, Andy, with the theory of everything. I'm not, oh, I, I'm not having that. that so was, I was, boring. It, I, <laughs> so boring. I'm not doing that film. <laughs> Pull it back. Okay. Okay. Well done. Well done. Well done, Rachel. Just before um, you let any spoilers out. Okay. Yeah. I have a troubled history with Queen. Our producer will be sat in the next room and wondering why I am... Um, saying things along the lines of, you know, you, you like Queen, this kind of thing. Because when we've done previous radio programmes with music in them, um, there were two things. I refused to play any U2 and I refused to play any Queen. Uh, Queen, because at that point, I think we'd been watching a lot of Stuart Lee and Stuart Lee was talking mm. about the, the, that they'd um, played uh, in South Africa when Apartheid was on. And that seemed, at that point, I was... I was a younger man and I'm worried now that I'm, I'm going to start turning right wing because <laughs> I'm getting older. <laughs> And then we watched this film <laughs> and it, it woke up things from from my childhood, I suppose. And I actually, I actually think these are a brilliant band for kids. Recently, on a school pickup, they'd done a singing assembly on a Friday afternoon. And as well as, I don't know, My Lord is My Shepherd or whatever they've done at that, you know, the Christian school where the kids go, they, the, the cool teacher puts on Bohemian Rhapsody. This, this kid came out just singing. My man just killed a man and he couldn't get it out of his head and he kept singing and then just laughing, bursting to let him into fits of hysterics and because he was doing that, I was doing that. We were just, just rolling around and that just sort of, that woke something up inside of me that sort of just put my morals 
<laughs> and just killed them. They put they put a gun against my morals, pulled the trigger, and they've gone. <laughs> because the last week or so, I've been playing the soundtrack to this album. I've been playing uh, Queen live in Hungary. I've been playing Queen in Rio. I, I don't know what's happened to me anymore. I don't know myself, and I'm worried about my future. Oh, crikey. <laughs> it's an existential um, moment. Yeah, and you're here to share it. Well, I, I totally get that, because we're a similar age. For me, it's a child thing again. Mm. And I have proof of this as well with Queen and children, because um, I do a drama group with um, four to six-year-olds on a Saturday. We did School of Rock. I made a little School of Rock Ooh, last weekend. Wow. It was brilliant. Fantastic. And um, I got them doing air guitar and doing yeah, the deep knee yeah, rock yeah. squat, and, <laughs> um, which is awesome. And I put Queen on. And I put We Will Rock You. So we're all doing the dum dum ch, yeah, dum yeah. dum ch, which they loved. And then when it gets to the bit where Brian May comes in on the guitar, this little boy who's, who's six years old, I don't know why he's ever seen a guitar d- player do this, but he did that whole sort of with a big sort mm-hmm. of round Ooh. circle on his he, They were loving it. Yeah. They were proper loving it. And they listened to the whole song. Normally their attention goes about halfway through a song because we listen to all sorts of modern stuff. Mm-hmm. This one, no, they mm-hmm. had it the entire time. And I remember being a young kid listening to Queen and doing the same thing, <laughs> getting that beat in and loving it. So, so let's pick on, let's pick and focus on that point there then. So when you saw that bit in the film where they were talking about writing this and saying that we oh, want the audience to get involved. I'm so excited. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm, I'm looking at it. I'm watching this film thinking, this is so set up and this is so rubbish. I know, oh, right? I love it. I know. That's what I said. I knew I was completely aware on a conscious level that I was being horribly manipulated, but I didn't care. I really didn't care. Yeah. yeah. Because I was just having such a lovely time. When the reviews were out for this and... You know, people were talking, Andy, you picked up brilliant. I, mean, I think every every point you've made is, is you know, pretty relevant. Uh, <laughs> um, particularly about the facts. You know, yeah. it's like the, the, the facts. I'm particularly one for facts, you know, when they <laughs> when they mess around with them so much. And they really did. Um, I mean, before I left the house tonight, I promised my wife, my wife, that we wouldn't, uh, not to Adam Buxton, we wouldn't uh, talk about Rocket Man. I, think, I don't think it's any secret that Rocket Man messes around with the facts, mm. but actually they've said very, very clearly, this is a musical. And for some reason that gives them artistic licence all yeah. of a sudden. <laughs> Could I just say like, about the facts, because uh, I'm not actually like an absolute stickler in biopics for them getting the facts right. And I know that to make an entertaining film, you do like tinker with it a bit, but there's certain things that you don't muck around with. So I think this this film has sort of three layers of, of how it does it. So, like, to me, it's fine to conflate a series of record company executives into one fictional representative figure because that's good storytelling. Yeah. You don't want to see it repeated again and again, people saying, no, this will never make a single. So that's good. You've got the representative figure. Everyone understands that. I think it's a little bit less fine to create this lie about the band breaking up and then reforming right before this pivotal gig. Yeah. Uh, but I understand it's to create dramatic tension and it, it kind of gives your film a bit of a boost at the expense of 100% credibility. But I can't forgive it moving the AIDS diagnosis. Mm. I think this is what a lot of people had trouble yeah. with because it's it's so brazenly used for an emotional punch it's put there this this thing where he talks to the other band members right before live aid and he says look um i've got aids and they it's it's just saying we we want this point in our story so we're going to bring it back and like apparently he didn't tell the rest of the band until 1989 to me that's unforgivable it's trampling on a major fact and it's just trying to get audience 
response from at the expense of a real life tragedy. And that is the major thing that made me really dislike this film. Mm. I did have an issue with it. And I sort of looked to see when he when he would have found out as well. And there are some debates around when he might have actually found he might have known then because there's a couple of people that said, oh, we did know who were close to him. But it's, yeah, the telling of it and stuff. I mean, it totally adds that sucker punch as well. And for somebody like bring, coming back to children again, although he's not a child at 17, Morgan, if you're listening, that's my nephew. You're not a child at 17. <laughs> but um, he watched it and he didn't know anything about Freddie Mercury, mm. really, because he's 17. So for him, I thought that was important that he knew about that element of Freddie's story because it is really tragic. But that could have been done just as well as it was, actually, where they, at the end of the film, they did the little sort of postscript of, Mm -hmm. you know, this is what he did and blah, 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 blah. But for that emotional punch, and it got my nephew really hard, that one. It really did, Um, because he didn't know. He thought that, oh, Freddie just died of cancer or something, because that's his lived experiences that people when they die young, it's cancer, that Mm -hmm. young people don't really understand about AIDS and HIV and stuff. They really don't. So that that was quite powerful to him. So I forgive it that for that. Because a 17-year-old boy understood about the AIDS and HIV thing that was going on then. So I can forgive it for that, for the, for the education of the young ones. I, yeah, so, I absolutely agree with you that it needed to be in there. I don't think you could, I think it would have been a disservice to mm. the story to just, as you say, put it as a postscript. Mm. Uh, and also I understand the need to end with Live Aid mm. uh, as, as the big finale. But I think it's... <laughs> It's clumsy just to go to go right. It needs to be in there, and, and I don't think it's been put in there for the right reasons mm. in that way. I think it's been put in there to go. Oh, this will have them crying. Mm. Uh, I would have preferred it if I think if they'd worked a bit hard on the script, they might have been able to work out a sort of more non-linear thing where yeah. you got elements of what happened after Live Aid, but then you went back and then you go forward to it, and so you can still end with Live Aid. And but still have the, the AIDS con. story in there yeah. without just going, oh, but AIDS right at yeah. the end and, and yeah. just putting that in to try and get them crying, get them. And yeah. I think it's great that your nephew will have, will have learnt that side of it. But as you say, you might not have gone away and looked up what it was about if it was just a postscript. Will he go away and go... Oh, is that how it really happened? Or will he go away and just... He did, actually. Did he? <laughs> he oh, did. well, bully this, for him. This is, this is the amazing thing about teens, especially. And yeah. especially, I know it's just exclusive to my nephew, but I don't think it is. If no. they see something they're interested in, BuzzFeed, IMDb, news around that time, they Google and, they, and, they ins- and they'll research stuff that's made them feel things. And yeah. he did that. And he said, "Oh, I went and I did, I went and learned more about him, and I've, they've now he's now got loads of his albums, and mm-hmm. and it's just opened this whole new world to him that he didn't know before. And he knows he knows a lot more about HIV now, which is well, really great, good. Yeah. So I, I like to think that particular age group is quite savvy. I've said it before, and so, I'll say it again: the kids know where it's at. They really do. <laughs> uh, they really I mean, I th- do. I think this is this is a really good point to bring in where we had a discussion before the tape started rolling." about whether this is a Queen film or whether this is, it was a part, in part of mm. our script. Is this a Queen film? Is this a Freddie Mercury film? And it's a confused film, as Andy yeah, quite, yeah. quite rightly points out. I think there could have been a better Queen film. Yeah. There could have been a better Freddie Mercury mm. film, yeah. which actually I think at some point may or may not. I, think I, I don't know. I think on. people look at this and think... Yeah, what well, we can do better than yeah. that. How many versions of Spider-Man have there been? You know, exactly. We can, <laughs> we can do this, but um, steering away from that, I mean, I think this was actually finally excellently cast. Oh yeah. I mean, let's you know, I, I agree with. Let's push the writing to one side for yeah. now, and 
obviously Rami Malek. Wow, he's just you know he puts across he puts across that pompous side as I said earlier, which is just it's perfect because that's that's who he was. Um, But also the rest of the band, Um, Deaky, (laughs) Joseph Mazzano, who was in Jurassic Park. I mean, you know, this is one of the kids in Jurassic Park has has grown us that. It's such a perfect thing. Although there was one actual fault. There was a fault in the film where he said something which was very funny because he's a very funny character, John John Deacon in this film. And he says, I rewound it three or four times and you couldn't hear what he said. You oh, no. couldn't actually hear what he said. He would give a reply. It was one time when they were in the uh, room, I think it was with Mike Myers, the Mike Myers character, the studio boss guy. Yeah. Um, and it just, I thought, what well, that line was obviously funny. <laughs> What could, was it? I couldn't hear what it was. <laughs> subtitles. Um, subtitles up. But hey, Lucy Boynton. Oh, love uh, if Lucy. You go, if you want to go to a Lucy Boynton film, let's go to that film that we, we haven't got yet. And I don't think we're ever going to do on, on Spider-Man. Just because I think we're all going to love it so well, much. Yeah. Sing Street. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. We're all going to sit here saying yeah. how wonderful it is. True. Let's just sit here now and say it's really it good. It's brilliant, yeah. yeah That's yeah, our exactly. spoiler episode on totally. Sing Street. Yeah, That's yeah, all you yeah, need yeah, to know. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about voices because there's a bit of audio I want to play you to uh, just in, in, a, in a minute or so. The way they did the voices on this, I think I've got this right in saying that they used a mix of Freddie's vocals, mm-hmm. Rami Malek's vocals, yep. and some, I've written this down, some of the dude. I, I wrote Mark the, Martell. I wrote the word dude. Sorry, Mark I just banged the table. Mark Martell, how dare you. <laughs> that must have been on the second page of Google. Mark Martell. Dude. And I wrote, look, you see, I've got the name down. Well, golly. <laughs> got him. I wrote it, but I just wrote the word dude and I really wanted to keep it in the script. But how did, how did you... Do you think that worked? You know, the miming along to these these mix of voices. Do you think it worked? I do. I'm one. The main reason I love Freddie is because of his voice. Um, I think he's got an incredible vocal range. Mm-hmm. Apparently, it's about four octaves, which is stunning. Okay. And I was worried because I thought, well, how are they going to do this? Because nobody can emulate. Well, it turns out that Mark Martell almost can. And I thought, well, I don't know how this is going to work because it's okay, sort of half doing an impression and I know Taron Egerton does work does vocals for Elton he sounds quite good mm-hmm. right, but we've got one more we can only mention Rocky Man one more <laughs> okay sorry <laughs> three strikes and you're yes. out but I was actually really pleasantly surprised by how well this worked I was quite I was immediately while I was watching it googling going have they done this because I don't know how they've done it and I've listened to Mark Martell loads since. And I just, I watch him just with my mouth open. And I keep sending my housemate out into the kitchen going, do you think this is Freddie or Mark? Freddie or Mark? Freddie or Mark? <laughs> and um, it's, it's just stunning. Um, but there's a few bits, like when he, the, my favourite bits is when there's no backing at all. And it, you can just hear Freddie's voice. Oh, and that's just my favourite thing ever is Freddie's isolated vocals. I could just sit and listen to that all night. In which case, you're in for a treat. Yes. Because I've brought in some Freddie Mercury isolated vocals. There is a podcast available. I didn't know you that, honestly. This is fantastic. Um, if you were to go to SoundCloud and you type in KLOS. Now, KLOS is a, is a zoo format radio station uh, where they sit around in the morning and talk over each other. And, you know, they talk a lot. But I know they're paid to talk. Um, but as you'll hear, towards the end of the bit of audio we're going to talk about, they, they just wouldn't shut up. But I think it's because they were so excited about what they were hearing. And what they do is uh, every Monday morning they bring in uh, a young gentleman called... I say young. He used to, this guy was in a very stormy relationship with Mel B from the Spice Girls. He's oh. lived. Um, <laughs> this is a guy called Dr. Christian Hand who uh, does a lot of these things where he gets isolated tracks, vocals. You know, he'll bring the bass in and show, and show you how the bass works then alongside uh, the rhythm. And I've listened to a lot of these. I've listened. They've got some 
excellent stuff on there. They've got they've got some Belinda Carlisle on there, right? Uh, they've got I know you think of that, but they've got uh, they've got Springsteen. They've got all the you know they're, they're all the classic. They've got Springsteen, Springsteen, Born to Run. You listen to the isolated vocals yeah. on that man alive. We're beside <laughs> ourselves here. Um, so let's drop in uh, this bit of audio and see how we are. See how we all feel. This is uh, from Under Pressure, and obviously uh, featuring our, our beloved David too. The terror of knowing what this world is about. Watching some good friends screaming, let me out. Tomorrow gets me high, high, high. Turned away from it all like a blind man. Sat on a fence, but, but it, it don't work. Keep coming up with love, but it's so slashed and torn. Why? Why? So how do we all feel after that? <laughs> oh, my life. That is out oh. of this world, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, apologies for the American voices at the end there. I didn't want to cut it short. Um, and that is just, I mean, that, that bit in the bit where he goes, hi, hi, yes. hi, hi. And then he pushes Jeez, it even further. <gasps> oh. My, oh, my. And this, this is, is where the, I, <laughs> I just, I'm just at odds with what I've said earlier on in the programme. You know, this is a band that, Went and played in South Africa during apartheid. Why did they have to do I that? Don't. And that, that, it's one of those little things I can't unplug from my mind. Mm. And it's there now. Yeah. It's the same with you two. Flipping annoying. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, before we push on and move move towards Live Aid and, to, uh, and towards the end, let's talk a little bit more about, about the... <laughs> I know you want to talk about Mike Myers, Rachel. <laughs> um, I'd quite like to talk about Rami Malek's teeth. Do we think they were just a little too much? <laughs> I said they might be a bit too big. Um, but I think it's because he's got a very different um, size face to Freddie. Yeah. Because when you look at them, like, I thought, all right, let's have a look at their jaw lines because you know my background in makeup artistry and wig yep, making yep, and yep. stuff. My initial thought, they're too big. But then as I kept looking at Freddie and I was looking at them both next to each other, Freddie just had a bigger face. Mm-hmm. Rami's very delicate, so they look bigger in his mouth than they probably would in Freddie's. So I don't think they could have made them much smaller, to be honest. And after a while, it's, you stop looking at them quite so much. Yeah. And it was important for Rami to be able to keep putting his lips over them, because mm-hmm. Freddie always did, yeah. and to have that understanding that because of that those extra incisors and the bigger cavernous mouth that he has that gave him that sound which is interesting because Mark Martell who sounds a lot like him has big teeth too oh. 
Oh. And I was like, oh, is this something about teeth? <laughs> so, um, obviously a lot more than just teeth, but um, yeah, the wigs were more concerning to me, to be quite honest, than the teeth. <laughs> well, S- some were lovely and some were absolutely awful. Mm. So, and th- that's always distracting to me, obviously. It is, it is. It's a good point, but I just want to drag you back to the teeth. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, IMDB, as we all know, I love diving around in their trivia. That's the longest trivia section, 233 Oof. entries last count. And I'm sure this is because of the fact issue, you know. There's so yeah, many yeah of facts in there. Um, but someone on there said, Rami Malik now has these teeth cast in gold. I thought, where would you keep them? That's very odd. <laughs> that's very, are they mounted somewhere or are they in a frame? I don't know, I'm going to have to befriend the guy, aren't I? You are. Um, for um, many reasons. I've got a weigh-in on the teeth as well. And just like, <laughs> they, it did bother me, mainly to begin with. I did get used to them a bit mm. later on. But to start with, it, it, I mean, he did say that it was a struggle to do it. And mm. it did look a struggle yeah. to me, especially like, I say especially in the early scenes. I mean, it wasn't shot in sequence, but maybe it was me getting used to it. But mm. it did look like he was constant. They were about to pop out all the time. That, Freddie used to do that. If you watch interviews with Fred... Is Honestly, he used to do that hell of a lot. Especially when you know, the, like they put the footage over the the end credits. I mm. was looking for some kind of uh, something there that that looked similar, he, but he didn't do it. He then. didn't that have was the bulging on. like he has a huge bulge under mm. like where the, you can see their fate. There's one particular scene that got to me where uh, he walks out. He walks out into like a sort of courtyard, and the, there's a camera shoots him from below. And I'll shine away from the screen because I thought, any minute now, they're going to fall out, those teeth. <laughs> and they're going to hit the camera in like some sort of grotesque ballet of fake gums and stringy spit. And it's going to be horrible. Uh, Sweet. But uh, yeah, I, I did feel, because do you think he deserved the Oscar? Yes. Because I'm not sure. I'm, and for me, again, sorry to come back to it, but I think it's the writing. I think he had the potential to reach... Oscar-worthy performance if he'd had the material. But I think he's struggling equally with the teeth and the material <laughs> and he's not not getting it. So there's like bits, like I can see that he's, he's nailed the gestures and everything and the little glances. And But for some of it, I feel like I'm just watching a gifted mimic in a Freddie Mercury Halloween costume. And it's... it. I just didn't, couldn't quite connect with it. Oh, it did with me and it was weird because... Tim and I watched it together and at the end obviously they show the real Freddy in the Don't Stop Me Now video mm. and um, Tim said he felt odd because he'd been watching Rami for so long that all of a sudden he was Freddy oh. and he said it was weird seeing the real Freddy all of a sudden he felt oh that's a bit wrong so Tim had totally invested in Rami being Freddy yeah. and so did I as a massive Freddy fan yeah that's I totally I invested say. and um, I'll bow to you and, as well a no fan. if you don't think his acting was very good but then I mean that's, you know that's one thing but I thought, you're more familiar with Freddy because he, he meant more to you and so possibly I think also I'd if he hadn't have nailed it I'd have been really upset Mm, yeah. Um, and I was worried because Freddie's like akin to that messianic thing. Is like, because he was, because he sung opera as well. And I was really into opera as a kid. So when he sang with Montserrat Caballé, oh, those are some of my dreams come true. It was like, oh, he also sings opera as well. So he was just perfect for me. And um, so I was like, he's, he's too small. He's too short. He can't do this. He doesn't look like him. He doesn't sing. Blah, blah. And then I was just blown away. Absolutely blown away. And I thought he was really quite endearing. Pompous as Freddie was, he was also very sad, a very yeah. sort of tragic figure. And I thought that Rami really, really managed to bring that out. He did seem pompous. He did seem irritating. But I felt sorry for him. And you, and you should, because it was a very s- sad and confusing life for him. 
And he loved cats, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 uh. I, as I say, I was I was ready to really not like it. Yeah. Um, very much ready not to like him, but I was very much won over, and I think that was a, a lot due to his performance and the endearing qualities of it, not mm. the mimicry so much. I mean, yeah, watching him do the Live Aid stuff and the performing and everything else, it was like, oh, that's really like Freddie. But it wasn't that stuff that really appealed to me because I thought, well, I can watch Freddie do that. It was the stuff with Mary and with and his interaction with the other members of Queen as well, with Brian, Brian May. The actor <laughs> who played Brian May, what a lovely... Oh. I just love him. He was perfect. So Willingly. Just lovely and so gentle and so mild. And I mean, I've seen Brian May on interviews and stuff, and I did meet him once a few years ago. Because he was at the, um, the Badgical March many years uh. ago, and so was I, because he's a big um, supporter of the Badgers and stuff. And he looks a bit like a Badger, I think he's King of Badgers. <laughs> so, um, but he's, he's so mild mannered and just so lovely and quiet. And I thought that actor just absolutely captured it beautifully. Yeah. Much as Rami's was clearly the crowd-pleasing and very... God, it must have been hard work getting every single nuance. But similarly, the other actors playing the members of Queen who are all still alive and therefore Mm -hmm. that's quite intimidating and they're there on set as well. I thought they did a cracking job. I thought they were really good. Mm-hmm. Really, to, really good. to the point where could you see uh, previous names involved like Sasha Baron Cohen or Ben Ben Wishaw? No. I could, you couldn't see it now, could you? No, definitely um, not. Gemma Arterton was, I think, was cast as Mary at one oh, point. No, she's she's too statuesque. Uh, she, if you've yeah. ever seen photographs of the real Mary, she looks like, Lucy looks a lot like her. Ah, I see, right. Okay. Um, and uh, well, I just love Lucy Boynton anyway. So <laughs> whatever she's in is fine. Can I just say while we're talking about Mary as well, there's actually some stuff I wanted to defend the film on that I didn't agree with that some critics said. The depiction of Freddie's sexuality was a big issue uh, in this and a lot of people saw the way this film approached it as a kind of finger wagging denunciation of a man led astray by gay men who shuns the sensible advice of his straight friends and then ultimately saw the AIDS diagnosis as being positioned as like a punishment in the narrative and I I didn't feel that I felt yeah. that's that's kind of overreading it it does glide kind of superficially over his sexuality a little bit and there's there's some sort of troubling stuff like when he says I think I'm bisexual and she says you're gay and it's never sort of challenged again a lot of people said there's issues of like bi erasure and and things there but to me it's just it's not born out of latent homophobia to me again it's just it's consistent with the kind of superficiality of the writing throughout so just as they kind of glide over swathes of the seventies career with these little glib lines like we'll mix genres we'll cross boundaries it's exactly (laughs) the same as that it's just my point about mary was that a lot of people criticized her in there as they said she had been positioned as like a kind of the straight saviour of the lost gay man and I think that's really small minded because mm. I was reading up about it and there's a quote from Freddie himself where he says the only friend I've got is Mary and I don't want anybody else to me she was my common law wife to me it was a marriage we believe in each other that's enough for me so like just from that from that quote, I can see you tearing up. Oh, I love it. I love that. I mean, obviously, that's a pivotal relationship. That's the pivotal relationship in his life, and so to play that down mm. is is not the right way to mm, go. Absolutely. And I think the problem there is that so many people, and so many different groups, want to claim Freddie as their own mm. and representative that 
it becomes a problem yeah. in in how you put your film across because you're not going to please everybody. No. So I think in pushing Mary to the front, I, I mean, a lot of a lot of films would have just yeah. tossed her aside and, and focused more on the band. Mm. And I think she absolutely needed to be the central figure. So I, I think that's mm. one thing that it really gets right. Yeah, I was really pleased that she was included because sort of knowing his story and stuff for quite a long time, yeah, you're right. A lot of Queen documentaries and stuff, Mary is almost like a side note and she should never be a side note in Freddie's life. She she was such a huge part of it. And I mean, she still lives in the mansion that he bequeathed to yeah. her, just so devoted to each other. And I love that it's such an unusual relationship. She was the love of his life. Yeah. Hard as that is for people to understand, she was. It's just there's something very beautiful about that purity of what they felt for each other. And I think that's where it moved me the most, when they were yeah. doing the light switches to each other. Yeah. And that time when he did the light switch and she wasn't there. Oh, I'm getting too up again. <laughs> and um, I think because I've always known about Mary and thought, you know, what a special woman she was, is, she's still alive. Um, I was really pleased that they gave her such a good role. And she did yeah. have say in it and she she is pleased with how she was depicted. Um, and that thing, when they actually had the confrontation and he said, I'm bi, and she said, you're gay. That's actually true. She actually did say that to him. Yeah, I think so, the problem was that, that it wasn't challenged yeah, in any yeah. other way. So yeah. there was no implication that that she was wrong or yeah, yeah. that it could be more complicated than yeah. that. But again, that's how you read it, isn't it? Yes, that's absolutely. Not, so yeah. to me, that's not written and it might be a bit clumsy mm. but it's not but then the rest of it is too so. yeah yeah now mark my words no one will play queen <laughs> mike Myers. mike Myers. he was underneath all that hair was that, one of the, was that one of the wigs you didn't like it the facial hair actually it was, oh. ugh, ugh. i'm not sure i could see glue i was like oh <laughs> but um <laughs> tim didn't even realize it was mike Myers. but I didn't. As, as no, it took as, me a while really it was the bad accent I was like, oh, it's my eyes under there. He should have just played he him as Shrek. Do accents? Why on earth does he persist in doing accents? But it was some kind of weird Liverpoolian northern thing, and oh, I just don't know why he had to be in it. It could have been anybody. What did it you really could. Think of the the Wayne's World joke. That's been. I did. I did kind of like that. That was quite the, funny. Did it? <laughs> Did you feel it took you out of it too much? Or? Well, as soon as I saw him, it did, to be honest. Yeah. As soon as that dodgy accent came in, you know, if you're going to do an accent, nail it. <laughs> if you're not going to nail it, don't do it. And um, so I was immediately distracted. So I thought, well, that's taking me out straight away anyway. So I thought, well, OK, I'll enjoy the joke then while I'm out here, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> enjoy the fresh air. <laughs> yeah. Excellent, right. So... Okay, so Bohemian Rhapsody culminates in a highly praised performance sequence of Queen at Live Aid. So at this point, it's time to introduce Richard Skinner. It's 12 noon in London, 7am in Philadelphia, and around the world it's time for Live Aid. The dignitaries are greeted with a royal salute, and then the lads come on and wallop out that song that starts the London event of a hodgepodge together knees up in order to raise some money for starving people. The bigger something gets, the more problems are associated with it. Just ask the organiser of Glastonbury or the showrunners on Game of Thrones. The public, bless them, start to feel ownership of an event or TV show, and the more people who turn up or tune in, the more individuals try to dictate how they feel things should be done, even though they didn't come up with the idea in the first place or put an ounce of effort into getting the thing off the ground. One criticism of so many about the events of July 13th, 1985 could be that although they had that song, 
Were status quo really a big enough band to be kicking things off? Quite big in the UK and Europe, but they never really cracked it stateside, and many of the American TV audience were bemused. But at the end of rocking all over the world, they should have got the message. And they were hardy rock and rollers, used to the pressure of a big crowd. If it up to me, I'd have put them on first as well. Something that was stated at the time, and has definitely been obvious since, was a lack of artists of colour playing the UK concert. Women were also conspicuous by their absence from the bill. Laid-back singer Sade seemed to take the token ethnic female spot. Although no token artist, Sade sold an enormous amount of albums and fitted the sunny afternoon perfectly. Your love is king, crown you in my heart. Your love is king. In 1985, there simply would not have been the equality conversation. Sadly, the same could be said for the next 20 years. Only recently would that question be standard, followed up by dingbats on Twitter, accusing those of trying to get more equality on our stages and screens as being liberal snowflakes. Even with the fabulous Emily Evis working at Glastonbury, the lineup is still struggling to be made equal. But it's getting better. It's just taking a bit too long. Post Live Aid, questions were raised about how the money was spent and whether some of it ended up being used by the countries involved to fund the civil war, and the details of this are still a touch sketchy. And the notion of Africa as a whole has also been raised. Perhaps it could easily be said that my generation grew up believing this entire continent was poor and needed saving. And some feel that this type of charitable giving on such a scale is culturally patronising. I'd like to introduce some friends of mine to you. Criticism is all over this event. Some of the performers were under par, to say the least. Bob Dylan, Duran Duran and Led Zeppelin all had shockers. There'll be a short intermission while I get some monitors. Did we need to fly Phil Collins supersonically by Concord to take part in both the UK and American events? Did the backstage area need to be flowing in booze and other rock and roll substances? And of course, it's no surprise that all involved had a huge upturn in album sales and concert bookings following the event. Now, these all worthy points. People are dying. Surely every penny counts. In Ethiopia, seven million people are threatened by starvation. Thousands have already died. The famine caused by drought is the worst in living memory, and now the rains have failed again for the third year in succession. The relief organisations are doing all they can, but there just isn't enough food to go around. It's Christmas time. There's no need to be afraid. The Band-Aid single was created from Bob Geldof watching a report by Michael Burke where he described a biblical catastrophe. Dawn, and as the sun breaks through the piercing chill of night on the plain outside Coram, it lights up a biblical famine, now in the 20th century. He went out that night to an extravagant party where the abundance of food clearly struck a chord, contrasting vividly to the images he'd just seen from Ethiopia. I was just watching that Ethiopian thing. This, I think this is gross after coming out after seeing that. Oh, yeah. I'm serious. There are a lot of people eating a lot of food. Sorry, have you got any champagne? Well, I've limited myself to two sausages as a result I want you to help me sing this old Northern English folk song. Following the huge success of Band-Aid, Boy George suggested to Geldof that he should put on a big gig. So, along with Harvey Goldsmith, this fading pop star put on a colossal gig. 
And yes, there was a lot wrong, a heck of a lot wrong. But when thousands are dying every day and a young nurse has to turn hundreds of sick children away from an aid tent because they are beyond her help, that they are too far gone, and that meagre aid she has won't help them survive, that is when we need Elvis Costello to jump on a stage and sing All You Need Is Love, with the lyrics written on his hand, just in case. These are the people, albeit cajoled by Bob Geldof to get out and do something and raise some money so that this appalling situation could stop. Now, I don't imagine Adam Ant would be much copper doing a well or Howard Jones could drive the lorry that would deliver the much needed fats and proteins, but they can prance about and play some songs that encourage us, the general public, to do what we could do and hand over some of our hard earned. You know, you've got to get on the phone and take the money out of your pocket. Don't go to the pub tonight. Please stay in and give us the money. There are people dying now, so give me some money. It never should have been down to pop stars, faded or otherwise, to feed the world. But they gave it a go. Some of the outcomes weren't ideal, but it was better to try and help people live than to ignore the starvation of our fellow humans on a scale that I still struggle to comprehend. And to do that, some bands decided they should put some time in, in the rehearsal room beforehand. Unlike Dylan, who did turn up at a rehearsal room, but just got absolutely spanned with a couple of the Rolling Stones. Bowie put in a stonking show and generously gave up one of his songs to show a video showing just why the whole thing was being done. Lest we forget why we're here, I'd like to introduce a video made by CBC Television. The subject speaks for itself. Thank you. Good night. Please send your money in. Shocking scenes of parents leaving their babies, children wrapped in swaddling, just on the ground as no tools or even energy were available to dig graves. Who's gonna drive you home tonight? Sunday, bloody Sunday! You two were close, so close to the performance of the day. At this stage, relatively up and coming, but the crowd were definitely curious and into it. Even before Bono dropped down off the stage to dance with a fan from the crowd, causing the band to drop a song from their allotted 18 minutes, which the rest of you two were very unhappy with and spent the rest of the day thinking they'd blown it. But when they read the papers next day, though, a different story was shown. Bono held a hero. And, quite right too, it really was a great moment. Although I can't help but thinking I'd love to have heard how Pride in the Name of Love had sounded at Live Aid after a blistering performance of Sunday Bloody Sunday. And album track, bad. An album track. It's such a shame that YouTube became businessmen and tax avoiders. They meant so much to so many. Um, I'm sorry to interrupt, but we have had a bit of a complaint about the noise. <laughs> From a woman in Belgium. <laughs> anyway, uh, it gives us enormous pleasure to introduce the next combo. Her Majesty! Queen! So what of Queen? Hailed as the performance of the day. It's not hard to see why. Flamboyance in a set of solid songs, almost constructed for an audience such as this. Footage of the hand claps during Gaga is the stuff of legend. And we are the champions was hairs on the back of the net you follow. 
This is perhaps my favourite part of the whole day. An artist, an audience, and the very essence of that connection. So, Bohemian Rhapsody, is, it culminates in this Live Aid performance. And so peculiar, you can hear there from the, from the feature, Live Aid has been a huge, huge part of my life. Pivotal point in my approach to, well, looking after fellow human beings and also the, the way music is just, you know, not, not me for six. We moved to Lincoln in 1985 and my parents uh, bought a video recorder that they couldn't afford. Uh, because they were worried about me not having or, you know, getting any friends. And they taped um, a highlights thing for a while. And it wasn't true about the friends. I made some very, very good, solid friends that I still have to this day. I'm a very lucky person. But when I wasn't messing around with my friends, I would watch that video over and over and over and over and over again. It was just astonishing. So when Bohemian Rhapsody, it's totally by surprise because... I thought, well, I'm, good. I, I'm, I'm enjoying this part of the film, enjoying this part of the film. I love it when they're in the studio and how many more Galileos do you want? All this kind of thing. And, you know, I'm having a whale of a time. And I'm thinking, right, I'm watching this on, as you know, a small phone screen. I thought, right, I'm going to save the Live Aid bit. No, no, stop it. I'm going to save, <laughs> I'm going to save the Live Aid bit for the big screen when I get home at night, right? So everyone's, everyone's packed off to bed. Excellent, right, let's get the sound bar in. Try not to wake everyone up. Uh, big screen, here we go. And I'm completely split down the middle. The performance is astounding. It is astounding uh, because the performance originally was astounding and it's a very good copy of it. The editing in this sequence drives me up the wall. <laughs> the CGI of the crowd is awful, absolutely awful. The views on the stage are fantastic. The views from the stage to the crowd are atrocious, absolutely atrocious. Then they cut away to, say, 20 people who were obviously people of modern day dressed in things that they think people wore in the 80s but actually didn't. And they're all just clapping their hands together and looking like they're having a good day. They don't look like they're at a gig. They look like they're being told, now, go for it. And then they, they jump in. It is appalling. And this is what people were saying was the clutch point of this film, whereas I think it was the other way around. And I was just... So disappointed Aww. by the end of it. Do you know that this film won the best editing Oscar? Yes. Well? <laughs> How? Contentious. <laughs> anyway, what did you think of the live aid sequence? I would like them to have gone that extra step and actually tried to mirror the footage that they have. Because when you watch them side to side, and I did that before I came out, mm -hmm. I want to see how close it was by them actually mirroring the shots, yeah. the actual footage. Mm -hmm. Because the footage was great and that's how we know it and that's how we love it. Those shots... So if you're going to mirror, then mirror all of it. Don't make up your own editing version of it. I know they have to do the bits where they showed Mary and she's all la la la. <laughs> but um, you still could have spliced them in every now and then. But I would have liked to have seen them absolutely nail it mm -hmm. with all the shots and editing as well. And in this day and age, was there no way that they could have done something with the actual crowd? Mm. I don't know. I felt like 
the crowd. Maybe there I might agree with you about right, the crowd. There might have been some rights issues over that footage, maybe, might there, but maybe like people's faces and stuff. Mind yeah. you, they didn't have GDPR then, so they no. could have. But um, I know what you mean because it's so iconic. And you're right, the performance spawn, mm. absolute spawn. And I loved watching him doing his little jigs across the, across the stage yeah. and stuff. That was great. And watching Brian, who, who never really properly, you know, he never gets really. He's mm. always just that little bit held back, which I really love. But yeah, I mean, we've all been at concerts and gigs and stuff. Those sort of dull expressions on their faces. I mean, the the eyes of the crowd at Live Aid were just full of mm. wow. Wonder, yeah, you yeah. Know, they, they, they picked. 20 or 30 people that had never been to a concert in they their lives. They could pick you and me, Paul, Exactly. <laughs> really? We, someone listening to this, will you please cast us? Andy, do you fancy a job acting? <laughs> yeah, 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 I'm up for it, yeah. We could be rent a Johnny, Johnny, <laughs> Juicy, yeah, he's, he's all free. Yeah, four of us here. Yeah. <sighs> and then just duplicate in CG and just put different clothes on. <laughs> <laughs> we should do yeah, it. We've got a YouTube video in the making here. <laughs> um, Andy, so have you, see, have you seen, Andy, have you seen the sequence where they, they uh, the YouTube video, very, very popular YouTube video, where they, they, they mirror, they, they, they put no, Randy Malik's version uh, against... Fergus. I haven't, no. Uh, it's interesting. interesting for me because I'm the baby of the spoiler group. Mm. So Live Aid was not a big thing for mm. me because I was far too young. Yeah. And so it, I don't have a lot of familiarity with it. And when I knew we were going to do this, I thought about watching the performance. I thought, no, I want to come to it cold and see how they do it on here. So I didn't have all that. So I actually enjoyed this bit more, but mainly because the writing was gone then. There wasn't yeah, any. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so it was, and like, obviously it's it's an impressive set. They do Hammer to Fall, which is my favourite Queen song. But yeah, it, it did fall short. I, I did want to feel like I was there and I didn't feel I was in in that crowd. And if they could have finished the film with putting me in that crowd, I might have gone away feeling a bit more positive. Mm. I mean, obviously it worked for a lot of people because I, yeah, yeah. I think the Live Aid scene did its job in that it, it sent a lot of people away just going, oh, well, that was brilliant. They left that on a high. Mm. And that's why they wanted to, to finish on that. But You see, I think they just hijacked the music for that feeling. I think that they banked on the music taking people high like that. Yeah. And, and oh, memory absolutely. and nostalgia. Yeah. And so it was more like I felt like that in spite of the fact that they edited it like, what the hell are you doing? Um, but yeah, I know what you mean, Andy. And it's, I feel like you've been cheated slightly because I wish you'd watched the real one first. Yeah. Because the way it was just... It's, well, it was just filmed like any concert's filmed, but it, it is very much in there. And when when you watch it one on top of the other and the YouTube video, you can see how close they got to Freddie and he was really playing with the camera. And, and obviously we could see him playing with the camera in the film, but it's like, yeah, but I want to see the shot of what the camera's taking. I don't want to watch him playing with the camera. Yeah. And that would have put you much more in it. So have you actually watched it since, the real one? No, right, do watch it because it's just... You'll feel more in it than you did watching the film, I'm yeah. sure. Mm. And it's just wonderful. So did you still go away from the film feeling positive about it then? I mean, it's just the music for me. The mm. music will do it to me anyway. But there's obviously, a you know, music and, and, and film at the minute, uh, as we record this, yesterday is is around. Abbott, as, uh, as Andy said earlier, have done it, Proclaimers. Um, Springsteen's about to have uh, some, some kind of... Uh, it's not, again, not a musical, it's around there. And the final mention, uh, I can't say this word again, and if you could just say that word for me. Rocket Man. Rocket Man. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that's, that's all three one, of us one, have done one it of now. Us, one of us had to go, we can't do any more than that. <laughs> and I think it's time for me to get cracking on that elbow script. I've brought this up before, haven't I? <laughs> you have. I think they could, they could do it. A, Man- a, a Manchester musical. That's a, so elbow, 
a Manchester musical. Right, okay, there's the title. Um, <laughs> Heard it here first, folks. Mm, yeah, it's rotten, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it truly is. Uh, right, okay, so uh, this is the point where we give our final verdict. And uh, here we go. Was it... Or was it... No. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, we really got to do Rachel. <laughs> yes, Andy. Oh no! <laughs> well, thank you ever so much for listening uh, to us uh, do that. <laughs> if indeed you still are. Uh, thanks as always to our Radio Academy Award-nominated producer Jonathan <laughs> Hall, Jonathan Lee Hall. <laughs> for producing this programme uh, and thanks for continuing to download and listen uh, in your increasing numbers. We see the numbers, you know. We know there are getting more of you uh, and we, we appreciate it more than you know. Uh, so until next time, thank you very much. We'll leave you now, as always, with the genial Andy Goulding. The pop music world has posed questions galore that no one has managed to answer. Will Scaramouche do the Fandango? Are we human or are we dancer? Is this the way to Amarillo? Do you know the way to San Jose? Could this blue heart of mine use a nice red, red wine? Or would it prefer a rosé? How can you just leave me standing, alone in a world that's so cold? Will you still feed me when I'm 64? And is 64 really that old? Why does it always rain on me? Can I stand under your umbrella? Is Major Tom really a junkie? And is that why he went into Stella? If love's all around, and if love's all you need... Then will love really tear us apart? Can a chorus of You Are My Sunshine stop a total eclipse of the heart? If you can say stop in the name of love, then is love an emergency service? What is love? Is this love? Are you ready for love? And what have I done to deserve this? With each passing minute, the questions go round with 45 more revolutions. Perhaps the next song will emerge as the one that helps us unlock the solutions. Will we find out someday all the answers we crave when the pop song arrives at its zenith? Will some radio station enlighten the nation? If so, what's the frequency, Kenneth? Tonight I'm gonna have myself a real good time I feel alive You've been listening to Spoiler, hosted by me, Paul Tyler, with Andy Goulding and Rachel Burnett. Our theme music was composed by Ron Butcher. Floating around in ecstasy, so don't stop me now. Don't stop me. Cause I'm having a good time, having a good time. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell your friends about us, share links to our show, or write us a nice review on iTunes. If you'd like to contact us, you can email hello at spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Find us on Twitter or Facebook or go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Next time on Spoiler, we're reading Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's classic Sherlock Holmes mystery, The Hound of the Baskervilles. Dr Mortimer looked strangely at us for an instant and his voice sank almost to a whisper as he answered, Mr Holmes, they were the footprints of a gigantic hound. Spoiler is produced by Johnny Hoare and is a Joe Schmo production. The show was recorded at the studios of Siren Radio in the heart of the beautiful Cathedral City of London. Stop me now.
Da da da.